Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look into the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and joining me on today's show is artist and the director of the film Two Ways to Go West, Mr. Ryan Brookhart. How are you, sir? Hello, Derek. How are you? Doing good, and we were actually having a, a really nice chat here, uh, mostly comparing weather to to where we're respectively living, you out in California and me in Florida. And it's funny because uh, on my show last week, I was talking about kind of the same thing, you know, is we're in the dead heat of summer right now, no pun intended, because I can walk out to my mailbox and when I walk back in my house, I'm already drenched in sweat. It's ridiculous right now. Oh, I mean, humidity is like a food group when it comes to like the South and the Midwest. You talk about it forever. (laughs) You know, and we were actually talking about it because you you grew up in uh, in Ohio, correct? I did. I grew up in a place called Centerville, Ohio. And uh, what was it like growing up in Ohio? I, I've never personally been to to that portion of the country. So, what what was it like for you uh, growing up in Ohio? And, and was was film? Because I, I do definitely want to talk about your art career. But was art and film something that you were interested in in an early age? It's a great question. Um, it's actually the first time someone's asked me that question as it relates to where I grew up. And it, and that does play a significant part of my, uh, my creative development. And, and it's something I didn't even think about when I was, you know, younger, relatively younger, because we don't tend to think about those things. You know, we've got to get a little arc in our life to look back on it. Right. And, um, so yeah, I grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in a place called Ohio and I have a real, connection to that particular place because my grandfather was the first mayor of that town. So I, you know, really steeped in the the history of it. And Ohio was, I think like a lot of places growing up in like the seventies and eighties, it was, there wasn't, let's say the East coast or the West coast in that, you know, you would, would, we were like flyby states to some people. And we'd go to the movies and we'd see, you know, things like Raiders of the Lost Ark or uh, Gremlins or Explorers. Or for me, my taste went to the really esoteric as well. Um, and so, you know, film was kind of a, it was kind of a, was always expanding language because I became much, much more interested in it. As I got older, I started going, well, gee, what's, what else can I watch? And I discovered like the 400 blows on, PBS and things like that. So I was a strange kid that way. But, um, but I think that for me, knowing relatively early in my life that I was not going to be a lawyer, that I was not going to be a doctor, that I wasn't a jock, uh, but I did have these artistic inclinations, uh, which is not a euphemism, by the way, <laughs> but I, which, which, which probably you could actually read into it with me. But I, uh, you know, I, I was always drawing. I was always writing. Uh, I was always writing uh, scripts. I didn't even know they were scripts, frankly. I didn't, I'd never seen a script, but I would write the name of a character and then his dialogue or her dialogue, and then I'd write the other dialogue. I, I'll tell you a funny thing. I don't think I've ever talked about this on any of the interviews, but when I was relatively young, I would collect soundtracks uh, on, on vinyl. So it was like Alien and Empire Strikes Back, all those things. And, you know, Jerry Goldsmith and, James Horner and John Williams were like my my rock stars. And I would collect this music and I would, you know, watch these films and then I would rewrite the movies. And then I would, 
record the dialogue with multiple tapes so I could actually respond to myself in real time and change the pitch and whatever. And I would add the music and sound effects or whatever. And I did this for a number of years. I had no idea that what I was doing was essentially a, like a radio drama or a movie without the, the visual end, end of it. And uh, so I was doing that at a very young age. And again, I, I had no idea what the, you know, what I was really doing. I was just, I had such a, a, a creative impulse. Um, the, I also was doing uh, a lot of illustration and my teachers said, my gosh, you're drawing constantly. Would you like to draw the, uh, or illustrate, say, the, um, the Christmas card this year for this thing or that thing? And by the time I got into uh, uh, junior high, I was steeped in theater and, you know, you name it. By the time I got into uh, high school, I actually went to a private school. I, uh, I was running the school newspaper. I was working on, you know, I was basically like an unpaid uh, member of the staff. Um, and all of these things, and this is kind of a, a very wonky way of answering your question, I guess, uh, all of these things were obviously creative outlets for me. And I didn't have any one particular direction I wanted to take it in, but I knew that those were the places where I felt comfortable and I could also feel uncomfortable, but wanting to excel probably the way, like say a jock would go to, a, you know, these playing football saying, well, I, I didn't make that pass, but I'll try it again. I didn't want to make the pass in football, but I kept wanting to push myself further and further and further in my creative endeavors. And every time I found a new one, I wanted to try that one as well. And I think the, the logical conclusion of that for me was film, even though it wasn't on my radar as such. I was doing a lot of writing, a lot of drawing. Um, in my early 20s, I actually became an editor-in-chief of a pretty big art magazine. And I was the, easily the youngest person on the staff. And, and I really enjoyed it. And, and by the way, Derek, I mean, that was, I got to meet some of my idols. I, I got to uh, become friends with Roddy McDowell. Um, he, was a, he was a shutter bug. He, he loved taking photographs in my magazine, a lot of photographs in it. And I mean, gosh, met, interviewed Oliver Stone. And John Schlesinger became a, a buddy for a while. And uh, he did Marathon Man. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, things like that. And he was actually, I interviewed him in the magazine and I got to talk to him about this. And, you know, they would always say, well, you know, you should probably make movies. It seems like that's what you want to do. And I, you know, hearing that from people that I idolize made me really second and third guess that. That's got to be an ultimate form of reassurance. Well, it, 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 it is and it isn't because then you start asking yourself as a creative person, am I just a fraud? You know, what if I do it and I fail? <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, this is sort of psychotherapy. I'm sure there's a few people going, oh, yeah, I get that. I mean, you, you know, you do something and, you know, it's, it's an interesting sort of critic fanboy and fangirl class, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, which is, you know, people that are happy or comfortable criticizing or critiquing everybody else, but they don't dare do it themselves because then they're exposing themselves as maybe not being as perfect as they demand everything else be. It's like there's this all or nothing uh, idea that it's the worst film ever or it's the best film ever. Or, you know, I, I, I came to a place relatively early when I realized that anytime someone says that film sucked top to top to bottom, just like I started realizing that is a nonsense statement because no one makes a movie to suck. 
And there's yeah. a lot of great, great creative uh, artistic things going on in any movie. Uh, you know, you probably could pick out a few and say, well, yeah, Ryan, but what about that one? And that's, you know, look, there's always going to be an exception to the rule. But even films that I can't stand and I won't mention any, but like big, 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 crazy summer blockbusters. And I, I like a lot of those, too. But some of them I'm going, this is torture, really, for me to watch this. And yet I would never walk out saying the film is just crap. Because I can, I know there's a ton of artistic, uh, you know, uh, expression in that. I know there are a ton of artists doing their best work in there, and it, it's frustrating. I'm, I'm sure for them too, because they're going, wow, you know, we can't even linger on a single shot for two seconds. So you know, you, all that work I put in is now just edited out practically. So, uh, you know, I'm, I tend to be very careful with my, my assessment about other people's creative endeavors but yeah i mean I, I i would hear people that i really respect and say you should go try it and i felt like well yeah that's that's maybe a compliment but if i did it it would probably suck um some people probably think what i do sucks anyway but you know at the end you realize it has nothing to do with anybody else's opinion if you're authentically on your journey you're doing it i'm not trying to sound like a guru but if you're if you are genuinely in the process of doing it um it feels right. It feels good. And I always liken it to going back to that moment when you're a child and you remember a, a summer day lasted forever because you were absolutely engaged in your own imagination and time. All the peripheral stuff that we get clogged up with in our adult lives just is not there as a child. And the sort of boundless level of creativity and the optimism that comes with that and the, and the, you know, the creative ingenuity and the, you know, all those things which are so steeped in childhood. We have those as adults too, but we sort of bury them with all this peripheral crap. You know, the, the, the issues of worrying about what people are thinking about us or, well, maybe it won't measure up to my own uh, expectations. Those things, when you're literally in the, in the process of doing something creatively, authentically, those considerations fall away. And that's the best time, you know. Absolutely. I, I did want to backtrack a bit. The, the story you mentioned about recording your own dialogue and you know writing yeah. out character lines, that's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard on this oh. entire <laughs> podcast. Now, I, that's, that's so cool to imagine that you would go to that length to, to create something. But I mean, that's in a way how, you know, people do it, you know, especially at an early age. And, you know, finding that outlet, I mean, I can absolutely relate to that because you know growing up I grew up in a small town where sports were pretty much everything I had no right. desire to play sports and I, I didn't know that film was anything I wanted to pursue until I was in college but it was one of those things that you know doing plays and coming up with stories you know I used to draw little you know comic sketches when I was in elementary and middle school I mean artistic talent was something that I learned very early that I do not have but I would still, but I would still try it. But you know, nothing near like what you do. But it's still like telling little stories that way, and then taking production classes in college and learning that, you know, having that outlet, and even you know, just making silly movies with your friends, which I've you know done quite a few of those. But it's one of those things that you, you know, you want to do it when you do it. Like I, I was mentioning this on my show last week as well that. The filmmaking and the production side of things, it's something that you have to love to do. 
just because of the sheer amount of time that it takes to get everything done. Because everyone oh, yeah. from the director all the way down to the PA works very hard. And you mentioned, you know, no one, no one's out to make a bad movie. Right. They, and sometimes they just don't turn out that great. But that you can say that about really any type of project. You know, sometimes it just does not work out the way you expect. But no one sets out to make a terrible movie, and, and everyone and everyone works hard on it. Exactly, and and I've been on enough movie sets in my life to, um, and I think anybody who is a let's say a, a critic, and God knows we now know there are way too many people critiquing uh, any kind of artistic expression. Um, to the point that it, it seems you know, almost redundant. I mean, you know, give me some level of qualification why you're saying what you're saying, right? Um, there was actually an interesting quote I read by Oliver Stone about Pauline Kael. Uh, and if you remind me, I will tell you what that is. I'll have to look it up in a second. But, uh, but yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, you know, you can set up, you can buy the best ingredients for some, like, say, dessert you're going to make. And everything is like the most expensive, the best ingredients you could put it together. And one thing you might screw up or one thing might not come out just the way you want it. And yeah, the, the end result could be something that didn't ultimately turn out the way you wanted it to. It's like, well, it doesn't taste quite the way I expected it to. I think always, um, you know, a, a great, great, great film is some level of a happy accident. Uh, you know, I mean, a, perfect film some films become really really great with some time because they actually fall into a place uh you know zeitgeist in our culture that actually just hits at that right moment some films you know because they especially and i'm talking about a very specific period now some films like say in the 70s 60s 70s where that was a great auteur moment where you actually had someone say this is my vision my specific vision yeah, those are some great films because everything sort of like stood or fell on the backs of people like, you know, Bill Freakin and, you know, Michael Cimino, things like that. But those are, you know, those times pretty much are gone unless you're making really independent cinema. No, that, that's very true. And you bring up a great point that usually those who do critique don't do it themselves because I don't think some critics quite understand the level of work that goes into it. So, I mean, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I have a normal nine to five job, but then I have, you know, whatever film project I'm working on, that's almost like a second job because you come home, you might, you know, make something quick for dinner and then you just get to writing or you put out casting calls, you watch audition videos, try and get a crew together. It, yeah. it, it honestly is. It's like a, it's like a second job. You know, people don't realize the the amount of time and effort that that goes into it. So I I, I totally agree with you there. I, I did want to talk with you about uh, your artwork and your art design specifically in the film industry because sure. growing up, I loved movie posters, and, and I still think they're extremely important because when you go to a theater and it's unfortunate that we're not going to theaters now because as far as like what you would consider like a daily activity or something that you could go out and do. That's the thing I miss the most is going oh, to a movie to a movie theater and you seeing like the huge display of posters that are outside or that go through the hallways. 
You know, I, I'll always, whenever I'm done with a movie, I'll walk the halls of the theater to look at the posters. Because as a kid, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, I was a huge Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan. And when the first live-action movie came out, they had the, the four turtles coming out of the manhole cover. Mm-hmm. And it, that alone sold it to me. So right. how, how did you get into doing artwork in the film industry? Well, I, again, that's, that's a terrific question. Um, and, it, and it also takes me back to my childhood. Something else I did as a kid and I had forgotten I had done. When I had a giant set of scrapbooks where I would actually, on Sundays especially, this goes back many years now, because I'm, I'm hella old. <laughs> I mean, not super old, but I'm old. And I would, uh, on Sundays, they would sometimes print like four-color giant fold-out posters for movies. And I cut them out and I saved them. And I had literally scrapbooks full of movie posters. I was obsessed with movie posters. Um, not even, again, not, I, I, someone reminded me of that. Uh, a childhood friend and I said, wow, you're right. I remember doing that. So I guess there was always that, that, that really uh, cool, like you put it uh, when you saw the, you know, the turtles coming out of the manhole cover. And what we saw, I remember that teaser poster, you're seeing something that's actually, Oh my gosh, those aren't cartoons. Those are like real Ninja Mm -hmm. Turtles coming out of a real manhole cover. And I can, I can practically see them. My gosh, I've got to go see that movie. Um, that's the way I felt about, about movie posters myself. So I've been doing a lot of writing. I, uh, I became the editor-in-chief of, a, of an art magazine. And I was working uh, a lot with uh, the aesthetic of the magazine. It was like an over... It was a very expensive, perfect bound. Um, so like, that looks like a book, in other words, so I had a spine uh, expensive looking publication. And I spent so much time in the uh, design, uh, part of our, our company watching these guys put stuff together with Photoshop. And this was early Photoshop. And they also used, uh, a, a, uh, software called Quark, which was like this sort of, now it's sort of very rudimentary. I don't think Quark exists, but you know, you do your work in Photoshop and you drop it into this layout program. So archaic. But I was amazed at like the level of, of artistic expression you could get with, you could get away with, with computers. And I said, I've got to learn that. I've got to learn that. That to me was the missing part of my creative side in terms of drawing and illustration. I didn't want to illustrate anymore. And I still wanted to write, but that, that was like uh, almost alchemy, watching people work in Photoshop. So I decided that I would teach myself photoshop i had a friend who was just an amazing guy his name is brad parker and brad uh is a is a terrific illustrator in his own right now he designs things for body glove and he's he's amazing but when that magazine ended i started another magazine it was called go figure it was a toy action figure entertainment magazine and at that point i decided that i was going to you know, really put my uh, my neck on the block and start doing some of the illustrations. Most of them were being done by Brad, who was doing like these amazing composite shots of taking photographs of the toys and then making them look really photorealistic in these really photorealistic backgrounds. Nobody was doing that at the time. Nobody was. Now everyone does it. But we were definitely the first doing that sort of thing. 
And I needed to understand how that could be done. I was just blown away by it. And so Brad gave me a lot of lessons and I, you know, bought a better and a better, better computer. And when Go Figure ended after about two years, right around that time, a company called Full Moon Entertainment, Charlie Van, Puppet Master, I'm sure you know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reached out to me because I, we had done a, a number of things with uh, Full Moon and said, hey, I'm looking for an art director. Are you interested in the job? And I played it really cool saying, oh, I'd be interested, desperate for a job, right? Because the magazine ended. And I went in and that started a, a relationship with, uh, with Full Moon. And I started designing toy packaging for them and movie posters and things like that. And that lasted for a while. And But to this day, actually, I have a relationship with Full Moon and Charlie. But that specific part of my career, that's what jump-started that. And being part of Full Moon was a huge benefit because you know, they really ruled the video aisles for a long time. Right. So I got to see a lot of my stuff, you know, really got a lot of exposure from that. Uh, I was getting better and better, better. What I was doing I was more confident. And so I'm working with a lot of companies from discovery to image entertainment to, uh, I mean, you name it, I was doing a lot of stuff. Um, and to this day, that is sort of what I would call my day job. But, I tell people all the time, it's a job that I would do even if I wasn't paid for it. I love design work. Um, I don't even understand precisely what the terminology would be anymore because there's such a weird kind of like um, collage of of disciplines that you can apply to it from illustration to design to color theory, all that stuff. And, And I love it. In fact, right now I'm actually applying a lot of those ideas to, uh, uh, and uh, I can't think of the name of the program right now. It's not, it's the graduation from Maya, whatever it is, but um, I'm doing it for a sequel to a movie called Trace that I directed a few years ago. So that's how I got into it. And I'm, you know, like I said, I'm still doing it. I designed the art for, uh, for Two Ways to Go West, as a matter of fact. Have you been doing a lot of design work still, you know, despite the fact that everything shut down for the most part due to COVID? Well, it's interesting because there's actually more work now. Uh, and that's basically because there's so, uh, there's so much uh, content that's, that's needed. We're, you know, we're essentially streaming everything now. You can't go to movies. And so anyone who has a, you know, a, a digital streaming service or you know, has content that they want to get out there and they want it to, uh, you know, to be picked up by, you know, one of the distributors, one of the digital distributors, they need artwork, they need a campaign. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I will say that I'm actually doing more work now. That is interesting to think about, because there are certain jobs that are still work are still going, or can be even busier. You know, I've I've used this comparison a couple of times, uh, you know, throughout people that I've talked to, especially out in California, because similar to you know, I mean, I feel like California is one of the biggest states as far as shutting everything down goes, as far as just like the sheer amount of stuff. But those oh, yeah, those sure. who those who write or do jobs like, say, edit video or in your case, do artwork, you can still do that from your home because you can just all you need right. is a computer and the software to be able to do it. So I, I expect and actually predict that once COVID is over and we get back to whatever the new normal is going to be, because we were also talking about this earlier, that we neither of us think that things will be 100% back to the way they were before. No, but, for sure. But I also think that 
there's going to be this huge surge of creativity and content creating because everyone who's a screenwriter can still write at home. And then once production start back up again and, you know, people can, you know, go out and, and make indie films like we're, that were going on before, I think we're going to see a huge surge of that. And I, I personally can't wait for it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, digital cinema um, or whatever you want to call it, you know, long form storytelling, even short form storytelling from a filmic standpoint of view has become highly democratized because of, the, you know, it's so inexpensive to actually do it if you want to do it and obviously there's an enormous amount of work behind it but you can shoot a you know a 4k feature on your phone Mm -hmm. so it's not a question of not having the tools to do it it's a question of having the motivation to actually you know come up with a story um you know putting all the work behind the scenes and actually doing the work but uh because of that i believe we have a tremendous opportunity to to do a, a lot of great stuff i mean there's going to be a lot of you know, not great stuff too, but I think that it is a tremendous opportunity. And yeah, to your point specifically, look, I've been working out of my own home office for years. Uh, the idea of having an art department, um, an actual existing art department in a studio, I think that went away years ago. I think one of the last ones, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, on the Paramount lot. And that ended uh, right after a specific film. It was, there was, you know, everything was being outsourced. And I feel, you know, it's a very strange thing because definitely all the designers I know, we're making a lot less money than we did when we had, you know, studio projects on a regular basis. Now there are so many things out there and the price has gotten lower in part because the perception is, well, if it's not being printed, uh, then it's, you know, it shouldn't cost as much, which is, which is up, you know, totally ridiculous because, it's still the same material, if not more material. You know, every piece of art you do, you're doing multiple versions of that piece of art. And that doesn't include all the different, you know, comps, you know, versions you're doing. So it's, it's A, it's got to be something you love to do. You know, B, you've got to have a real hunger to make it really, really good. And C, there is a tremendous opportunity for this kind of work, whatever the, you know, whatever the work is in terms of making films, making content because we're going to need more and more and more of it. And like you said, dude, I mean, we're never going to go back to the way things were. I, I truly believe that the cinema experience will return. I believe the theater experience will return, but it will not be the same experience. And I think it's going to be a slow road back to some, some degree of what we remember, but not, again, not the way we remembered as kids. Um, it will never be that freewheeling. I just don't think it will be. Well, I can also see the, I think big cinemas like AMC and Regal, I think they will still be around for the most part, but I also think we could have the opportunity to see a lot more smaller, you know, more locally owned theaters that show like your, your indie films. Like I'll use the lighthouse as an example, right. you know, one of the, the A23 films that came out along with like that and uncut gems, more independent based things. I can sure. I can see a possibility where we see more of those pop up and you'll still have your your big cinematic experiences like the Marvel movies and things like that but I don't think we'll see as much of them because I've even read that you know future Star Wars productions could have a smaller more intimate feel due to COVID. 
Yeah, and look at how, how successful uh, Mandalorian is. Oh, I mean, it's man. a terrific show to begin with, but it's you know it's uh, it has uh, it's in a way it's absolutely perfect for this kind of uh, of experience. You know, you get these thirty minute great stories that uh, I don't know. I can't say enough great things about Mandalorian, but you know something I'm sure you've seen too. Not only are you know a lot of say big films, big tenfold tenfold films, especially being pushed back to next year. But those few cinemas that are actually showing things like in England and uh, various other countries, they're showing, it's like a revival theater, Empire Strikes Back, Jaws, Ghostbusters. And these films in very, very limited windows of, of distribution are doing incredibly well. That's something else I think we're going to see more of is, you know, just because we have it on DVD or digital format or whatever, people still yearn to have that big cinematic experience. I just don't think anything can replace that. And so it's going to be specialized, um, but it'll still be there. It's just going to be there, like you say, in, in a more, I don't know, rarefied place. I'd love to see some old movie theaters, you know, come back and have, you know, limited runs, something like uh, well, Lighthouse is perfect for a theater. And then maybe a week shows, uh, I don't know, Indiana Jones films or whatever. It, that would be terrific. And I'd go pay money for that. Man, I would love to see Empire Strikes Back and Jaws in a movie theater. That would be absolutely I, amazing. Yeah, I never got to see Jaws in a movie theater. That drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but there you are. Oh, you never know. I mean, hopefully, once theaters slowly start to open back up, we will get the opportunity to, to do that. But Absolutely. Speaking of movies, you recently directed... Uh, uh, a film called Two Ways to Go West, which I believe yes. is now available for uh, for streaming. Is that correct? It is. It is. You can watch it uh, uncut, but with some commercials free on Tubi, which is, uh, I just actually watched it the other day on Tubi, and it looks great. Um, on that, In fact, the way they cut it up, we have these sort of ch- chapter breaks of a sort in the movie that are built into the film. But Tubi found a way to kind of integrate those into the way they present the movie. So it's kind of kind of cool. Um, it's on Amazon. I believe next week it'll be on iTunes, Roku. It's, you know, basically most all of the, of the major uh, digital platforms. Amazon, for sure. Um, yeah. So what was it that drew you to want to direct this, and how are you approached to do it? Well... I'll kind of tell the story slightly backwards. I, the script that I read, I thought it spoke a very specific place that I, that I was going through uh, at the time, feeling of betrayal and confusion with friends. Um, and I thought the script nailed that kind of experience without, you know, right on its nose. It wasn't like telegraphing a specific event or this or that. It just had this feeling of, wow, I, I know what, these guys are going through um and they're just three guys are not the most articulate people and you know they're they're smart fellows but they're not you know speaking to this specific event or that specific event they're all just going through their own sort of you know emotional uh, maturity because they're in their like late 20s and they're about to get married and i don't know I, i i was reading that and i thought gosh this really feels authentic um I, I had read it in part because a friend of mine wrote the screenplay and he said, Hey, would you just give me some notes? I'd love to know what you think about it. 
And so I read it and I said, gosh, you know, I mean, I can say that maybe this could be expanded or that could be expanded. But if you're asking me what I think about the story and the script as it is, I think it's just great. And we ended up having a few additional conversations just about theme and about how one would approach directing something like that. Because it does read very much like a stage play. It's got kind of that Sam Shepardy, you know, you know, three men escalating their intensity in terms of what they think about certain things, but not necessarily getting angry at the specific event, sort of talking around it and all that stuff. And um, so the guy who wrote it, who's in the film, James Adele, uh, he eventually came to me and said, I'd like for you to direct it. I would, I would be interested in having you do that. And I was really honored. I had finished uh, a film called Trace and I was working on a couple of their projects and I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so that's what, uh, you know, those, and also just working with James, working with a close friend who has very similar uh, ideas and attitudes about storytelling, but at the same time is just different enough that we kind of can complement each other. Um, he's the easiest uh, collaborator I've ever worked with easily. No question about that. And so, you know, if I wanted to go a little weird with a scene or, you know, extend something out because I just thought it would be more authentic to those characters, he was always for that, uh, which, you know, that could be a battle occasionally when the guy who's in the film was also the writer, but his sensibilities and my sensibilities dovetailed nicely with each other. So that's really how the project came about. Well, that's great that you were able to find someone that you could collaborate with, you know, and, and you know it's going to work when it doesn't feel like work. You know, it just naturally kind of happens. So, no, that that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel incredibly blessed. We're actually, uh, uh, he's going to be in a film that I'm directing at the end of the year. And, um, and then we're working on some other things together. So, yeah, it's, I, I see this as sort of a lifelong collaboration. So how was your experience actually making the film? Because I, I did have the, the pleasure of watching it um, earlier today. I, I love that you're, the, the story is really centered around just three characters. And even though it's a feature, most of it takes place in one location, wh- right. which I, I find very interesting. Uh, so how, how was your experience in making the film? Well, it was a really good experience, um, you know, because there was a, a limited amount of space we were going to shoot in, um, even though the, the location itself was relatively big. And I think we we squeezed out a lot of different angles, you know, and things like we had a kitchen set, we've got a living room set, the bedroom set, whatever. Uh, you know, we it did feel bigger than it actually was in, in that sense. And because we were we were, I was limited to where we were going to be shooting. It actually allowed me to imagine uh, a lot more than I would. I think when you have too much space to work with, you can get, uh, you can always be second and third guessing yourself. When I did Trace, we had a lot of sets, an enormous number of sets. And every single day I would go, well, gosh, you know what? We should have shot this way or we, we should have shot that way. Whereas with uh, this film, we just we could sit there and go, mm, let's try five different ways in this room, see how they work best. Some scenes to me, right on the page, I felt like there's only one really good way to shoot this because this is about this character's 
internal motivation. It's not like, you know, we're, we're trying to get everyone's reaction. This is his, um, well, you saw the film. So when Gavin has his kind of big breakdown late in the second act, that to me, that entire sequence was already storyboarded in my head. I knew that we were going to be in on him. I knew the way he was going to be talking um, had to be for me, him saying something to himself, even though it was written to the other characters, I thought it would be much more authentic and less theatrical if he was just sort of muttering these things to himself. But we could hear them very clearly because we were so pushed in intimately on his face and, and you know, his headspace. Eventually, you know, even going so far as to sort of cutting into some very quick flashes of ideas or memories he was having. And I really, so stuff like that to me, it, as intimate as it is, it actually plays big and cinematic, I think in the right way. Um, so yeah, it was, a, and again, you have to have people, you've got to have a, a great crew that's down for that sort of thing. Um, and knows that you're not just throwing up ideas and saying, well, let's just film it 10 different ways for just for the fun of it. There has to be a reason behind it. You have to be able to like stand behind uh, a choice you're making. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I could have asked for a better clue in that respect. So, yeah, I'm trying to think if we had any real, you know, there were a few funny moments, like uh, there were some shots where we were using uh, a bathroom, which is actually a real bathroom, not a movie set bathroom. And the only way we could get certain shots was actually to almost create like a, a strange uh, uh, makeshift double tripod and then get the, you know, get the video feed out to the uh, video village. And so there could be no pull focus. We had to like, focus, you know, lock the, the camera and say, this is your space to work in. Um, and we can't get anyone behind the camera. <laughs> so it was, you know, crazy shots like that. But, you know, that, and again, you're looking at going, I like that though. I think that's really interesting. And it's a little unexpected, but it actually fits the tone of the story. There's some shots you want that I wanted, I should say, that looked a little more dispassionate, um, where you're seeing someone, you know, who's had a potential overdose and, you know, someone taking care of them. And I think the natural inclination for a shot like that would be to push in and really sell the drama and sell the heartache of that moment. And I thought, well, why don't, I'd rather reverse that. I'd rather have almost a God's eye view of that because there is a, there's a tendency to editorialize uh, those moments and say, well, see, isn't this sad? Isn't this, this, isn't this sad? I'd rather that be almost like a Rorschach test for people and say, well, how do you feel about this moment? Do you pity this person? Uh, do you stand in judgment of this person? Do you sympathize with them? But not, you know, not try to lean in and say, well, this is how I feel by, you know, cueing the music and pushing tightly in on their face. So it depended upon the moment. Um, but I never felt like we, uh, you know, we ever went overboard in terms of, you know, crazy camera angles or, or you know, trying to oversell something stylistically. I think the, the style was dictated by the way the story played out in the script. It's interesting you say that because I know exactly what shot you're talking about where you said you have that almost like a God's eye view of what's going right. on. And I, and I thought the same thing, like I was expecting it to go in tighter, but I, I, I like that different perspective though, because then you, you, in a way you don't know quite what to expect and you're not just 
doing the formula for the sake of doing the formula. So, no, I, I, I see your point in that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it, it was something I talked to them about because, you know, obviously we did, I did the, the inverse too, where we go really tight on certain conversations. Um, and those moments tended to be, you know, for people that watch the film a second time or whatever, they'll, they'll start picking up on probably what I was doing there, where you've got like the character of, uh, you know, the three characters, you've got Gavin, you've got uh, Shane, and you've got Marty, you know, Marty being kind of the, the, the warm center of those three friends. And, um, you know, Marty is not necessarily the most uh, uh, articulate guy with what he's trying to say, but you, I like getting close to him. I like getting close to his, his face because you can understand a lot more about him in, in not what he's saying, but what he's trying to say. And then you've got the character of, uh, of, of uh, Shane who's very pulled together. And what I liked doing with him was getting him looking, you know, big and imposing and slick, and then occasionally just pulling back a little bit and watching him sort of flounder, looking for a way to, to recompose himself. And the, the actor, Drew Kinney, is so good. And he knew precisely how to play that. There's some moments where, you know, he seems so composed and then he knows how to kind of just suddenly, you know, drop the mask and not know what to say. And of course, Gavin, because it's primarily Gavin's story, I was always trying to like go against the grain when he would have these really bad moments, you know, pull away when he was a, a little bit more, uh, you know, guarded, then you sort of push in. Whereas, you know, so we're kind of trying to figure him out. And that's the, the interesting thing that I, I enjoyed the most about the movie is that that dynamic between the three characters. And I, I almost sound like a broken record when I say this, because I've said it so many times on this show, but at the core of a film, it's about the characters and yes. the story that they tell. And I thought yeah. that the fact that it was centered around these three characters, they're pretty much together the entire time. And I, mm -hmm. I won't, I'm going to try really hard not to spoil, you know, big revelations that happen, but something that I loved about their dynamic is that you could tell there was this, almost like an awkward tension from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then you would feel the tension rise a bit, but then it would go back down and things would seem fine. Then it would right. go back up a little bit higher, but then it would be brought back down. And then there's the, uh, we'll say that the three, the three characters have a visitor. Yeah. And when, <laughs> and when she, when she storms out is when things really hit the fan. And you, yeah, and the, just the, the scenes, you know, with with Gavin in the the bathroom, and you know, he's trying really hard to hold it together, and you're like, oh, this is it, this is where it's going to hit the fan, and then it kind of comes down a little bit, and then it hits the fan. Yeah, I I, yeah. I enjoyed that kind of you know, emotional push and pull. It was almost like a tease to a bigger thing, and then you get pulled back into okay, well then things are fine now, and you just get pushed a little bit more and you know, un until the, the climax of the movie happens. Well, one of my, one of my, I appreciate you saying that, um, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the film is, is right at the end, uh, where the three are back together. And I, I won't, yeah, to say any more is to say, is to kind of give, you know, not that like, there's any massive revelation in the story, but you know, you, th there is a sort of a, a, somewhat of a resolution and, I always said, if we didn't nail that moment, uh, then, you know, then this whole journey is for naught. 
And I am so happy uh, that I, I believe we really did nail that. Uh, some uh, some friends of mine were, you know, tough guys who have like, yeah, the film was okay, but man, that last scene made me cry. And I watched the film again because of that, because it made me happy. I realized, okay, there is a way to kind of, you know, come together in the most simple way possible. And I guess it goes back to that initial question you asked me, Derek, which was, you know, what drew me to the story? And again, part of it was the fact that a good friend wrote it and, and I, I, I understood it and I felt like I was the right guy to write, to direct it. But, you know, we are in such this, we're in such a divisive period of our, of our lives country-wise, both from a political standpoint, obviously, and also the fact that we are being, we have to social distance, which in the, I think it's almost the worst possible situation because right now I think we need more of a communal uh, attitude. We need to, we need to be coming together. And, you know, social media, I think, has a great ring to it, but it's really not social media. It's declaration media where everyone sort of, you know, stakes their place in a, in a political ideology or a social ideology, whatever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's too bad. And I hope we can get beyond that, but just the simple act of people communing with each other and saying, Hey, I just like the fact you're alive on the planet. I just happen to like the fact that you and I have a shared history of doing goofy shit together. I love that. To me, that makes me feel like, well, then, then that journey is worth it, but we have to, we have to see it. Right. And that's the other reason I felt like, the, the script nailed a really great point, which is, you know, yeah, we could, we could have this soliloquy at the end where, well, what did you discover? What was, what's the big revelation? But that's not really the point. Um, it never is the point. It's like, do you love me? Do I love you? Are we friends? Are we, you know, at the end of the day, do we have more in common than not? And that was critically important for me. And it's, it, it's important for me in my life today, as we speak, um, I think we need to be purveyors of hope. Uh, and, and, you know, the creative, you know, world is, it has the opportunity to do that. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to be sunshine and roses, but it means that we can create commonality. And I think that level of commonality does create a certain level of hope. Because if we, if we know we're in this together, that we're not just alone on this planet, and more people today feel more alone than they ever have with social media, what does that tell you? So I think that stories that you know, celebrate real friendship and also uh, celebrate the fact that people can say, look, man, we were friends until Facebook came around and we were friends until you decided that you could ghost me. It's like, we need to, we need to also, I think in the best way, remind people that that's not okay. And that's not how friendships and that's not how communities are, are, are built. And so, you know, that's hopefully, I don't I don't even know if that's the question, but that's the answer. <laughs> no, I, I I couldn't agree with you more, and and it's you know, it was relatable to me in the sense that you know I've been there, I've been there to where I've had huge disagreements with friends, and it seemed like we weren't going to be friends anymore, and then it was kind of you know things things are going to be okay. You can have disagreements and still be okay. You can still work things out. And, and to your point. You know, yeah, it's great to to chat with people on social media, whether it be you know Twitter, Facebook, whatever the case may be. But it, it doesn't replace the true interaction that we have with friends when it's 
us hanging out in person or going out and doing things or even, you know, sitting at home and playing video games or something like that. And the combination of having to social distance due to COVID, you have, you know, the political divisiveness, you have all the social injustice that's going on. It's just a very, very uncertain and at times uncomfortable time. But to, to me, that that little message there at the end, it spoke to me in the sense that, you know, for one, I could relate to it. But it was like, you know what? We can all disagree on some things, but it's OK. Exactly. We can disagree on a lot of things, you know, but but if we can find a, you know, a, a common ground, a common <laughs> ground of reality, you know, substantive, a quantifiable reality that we can all stand together on, then we've got something to work with, right? I mean, because we're living in a culture now where people can seemingly question the, you know, the nature of uh, matter <laughs> is water yeah. wet. It's like, we can't, we can't build on anything like that. Um, and I feel that that is, uh, you know, maybe t- goes back to something we were talking about, I think even before uh, the interview, which was just a sort of, critical class that that's that's sprung up where everybody feels that they have to you know exert this or you know declare the how bad this is or how good this is and if you fall somewhere in the gray area uh then you you get marginalized or you get dismissed and uh that's very dangerous and that is not the way uh forward absolutely not the way forward i totally agree I could not have said it yeah. any better myself. And I know uh, as we start to wrap things up here, you had mentioned it briefly a couple of minutes ago, but you said that you're going to be directing another film, uh, hopefully at the end of the year. Yeah. A movie called the hourglass, which is a sort of a twilight zone film. And uh, that I'm doing that. And then I'm, I'm finishing the script for trace the origin, which is the sequel to trace, but it's actually kind of a prequel. It's an interesting kind of like, metaphysical prequel mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and uh yeah so I'm, I'm doing those things so yeah i'm busy i'm busy with uh, i'm just definitely busy with projects fantastic in closing yeah. uh what is one piece of advice that you would have for an aspiring filmmaker one piece of advice well uh first and foremost i would say if you if you really want to do it, if you say film is the thing that is going to be my, um, my way to not just express myself, but uh, express myself in the best possible way. In other words, if it's not going to be writing, if it's not going to be sculpture or dance or whatever it is, because all those are great things too. But if it's truly going to be film, start with the story. Um, everybody has an idea. That's great. And we've probably, you've probably heard this a million times yourself. I've got a great idea for a movie. It's like, yeah, that's not a story. <laughs> you know, um, What's the story? And if you've got a story, the story will guide you. The story will, will get you what you need. If you say, well, the story is about this, this, and this, and you can put it down. You can actually write it down and you can see the arc of that story. And you use that as the fuel as the roadmap to making a movie. It will not matter if the film is shot blurry. It won't matter if the sound is perfect. It will stand. And that's the most important part. 
the problem I think so many people get into, I know I have, I know a lot of people have, is, you know, when they start in the film, they go, hmm, I have an idea for a story. I'll go get a camera. I'll go get this. I'll go get that. And they end up with all this equipment and going, gosh, I got to put this stuff on eBay to pay rent next month. Um, it's really important to say, do I have stories to tell? Or do I have someone who has great stories to tell? And I have a filmic vision. That's the important thing. And then guess what? You're in luck because right now, if you're listening to this on an iPhone or whatever, you've got a camera. So you, now, now you're off to the races. So it's totally possible. There is enormous opportunity for every single person listening to this that if they want to get into making movies, this is the best time to do it. If you're wondering, well, you know, it's COVID and it's, you know, climate change and it's political horror and all these different things. All those things are true. But what's equally true is that you have an opportunity to change that through creative storytelling. You can make a difference. And this is the best time to do that. So there is real hope there. Do you have any website or social media that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Well, thanks, man. Yeah, um, if you want to follow me on uh, an Instagram, it's all one word. It's R-Y-A-N-S-C-O-R-N-E-R-Z, Ryan's Corners. That's, uh, that's Instagram. And uh, just my name, Ryan Burkhardt on Facebook. Um, there will be uh, eventually uh, a website going back up with my artwork, but it's down because you know, there's so many other things that we're adding to it. So right now that's not up. But, uh, but yeah, Instagram and Facebook would be the way to find me right now. Awesome. And I will respond as long as you say something constructive. It doesn't have to be nice, but as long as it's constructive, I'll, I'll respond. That's fantastic to know. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. It was fantastic. Uh, hey, it was really nice talking to you, Derek, and I'm, I'm now a subscriber, so I'm looking forward to uh, listening to our conversation. Well, you won't have to wait too long to hear it. So again, I, I appreciate the time and I appreciate the, uh, the subscription. But if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at D Diamond Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, really anywhere you can get podcasts. Just search for the Derek Diamond Experience. And of course, thank you to the Unicorn Wranglers for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can find all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. <laughs>